Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. And here is an orientation to the topic of focus for today's episode. Sleep spindles are observable, burst-like waveforms in sleep EEG that occur predominantly during non-rapid eye movement stage 2 sleep. Sleep spindles originate from the thalamus and are thought to arise from an interplay between the thalamic reticular nucleus, thalamocortical relay cells, and corticothalamic feedback. They are characterized by unique waxing and waning patterns of EEG activity. The spectral frequency band attributed to sleep spindles varies, yet there is reasonable consensus that spindles present across the sigma band with a general range of 11 to 15 hertz. Additionally, Research has differentiated both slow and fast spindles based on spindle frequency, with a general pattern of slow spindles being more predominant in frontal channels, whereas fast spindles are more predominant in central EEG derivations. Although the underlying mechanism of sleep spindles has been relatively well characterized, their true function is less well defined. However, multiple lines of evidence implicate spindles as a key player in cognitive maturation, memory, and learning while also being associated with synaptic plasticity that occurs during sleep. Importantly, sleep spindle abnormalities have been associated with a variety of pathologies, including psychiatric conditions, such as schizophrenia, neurodevelopmental conditions, such as autism spectrum disorder, and disorders with symptoms of cognitive dysfunction, such as epilepsy. Furthermore, given their role in memory consolidation, sleep spindles may play an important role and the pathogenesis of neurocognitive disorders such as Alzheimer's disease. Research has shown that sleep spindles are modifiable through techniques such as acoustic stimulation, pharmacologic agents, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. As such, sleep spindles are likely to be more than just a diagnostic biomarker for a variety of pathologies and normative maturation, with the potential to be therapeutic targets. Despite the fact that sleep spindles exist as distinct, non-invasive signatures of cognitive function across the lifespan, as well as the established relations between sleep spindle abnormalities and various forms of disease and pathology, no established normative thresholds for sleep spindle features exist. In this episode, I am joined by Drs. Catherine Chu and Dara Manoak to discuss a recently published article in the journal Sleep by Drs. Kwan, Chu, Manoak, and colleagues entitled Sleep Spindles in the Healthy Brain from Birth Through 18 Years, which aim to address this gap by establishing normative values of sleep spindle features across infant, pediatric, and adolescent age groups. I hope you enjoy. Before diving into the interview portion of today's episode, here is a brief background on today's guests, Drs. Catherine Chu and Dara Manoak. Dr. Chu is a physician scientist and an associate professor in the Department of Neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School with expertise in epilepsy, neurophysiology, and advanced imaging analysis across the lifespan. After completing her medical degree at Harvard Medical School 
and a graduate degree in social anthropology at Harvard University, Dr. Chu completed a child neurology residency, epilepsy fellowship, and a neuroscience research fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital. She then joined the Massachusetts General Hospital as faculty in 2012, where she serves as the founding director of the neonatal and pediatric long-term EEG service and the pediatric responsive neuromodulation clinic. In research, Dr. Chu's laboratory uses non-invasive and invasive anatomical and physiological imaging techniques to study normal development, cognitive function, and seizures. Her laboratory investigates electrical biomarkers and their physiological circuits to predict symptoms, understand the relationship between brain rhythms and symptoms, and develop treatments to improve them in patients with neurological disorders. Dr. Dara Minoak is a professor of psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. She received her doctorate from Harvard University in experimental psychology, completed a clinical psychology internship at McLean Hospital, and a postdoctoral fellowship in neuropsychology at Beth Israel Hospital. At the Massachusetts General Hospital, she directs the Sleep Cognition and Neuropsychiatry Lab, otherwise known as SCAN, at the Athenua A. Martinos Center for Biomedical Imaging. Dr. Manoak has devoted her career to understanding the neural bases of cognitive deficits and neurodevelopmental disorders, particularly schizophrenia and autism, so they can be more effectively treated. The goals of her research program are, one, to understand how abnormal sleep physiology contributes to cognitive deficits and symptoms, two, to identify translational biomarkers of sleep-dependent memory consolidation, and three, evaluate targeted treatments. Her lab uses multimodal neuroimaging, intracranial studies, non-invasive brain stimulation, cognitive testing, and polysomnography to meet these goals. She collaborates with both clinical and basic investigators doing complementary work. Her career goals are to mentor the next generation of clinical neuroscientists and to conduct research that provides insights into pathophysiology and leads to interventions that promote the prevention of and recovery from neurodevelopmental disorders. And now for the interview portion of today's episode. Doctors Catherine Chu and Dara Minoak, welcome to the SRS podcast. Thank you so much, both of you, for finding time, taking time out of your schedule to digitally sit down with me to discuss this impressive piece of research. I'm really excited to dive into the details of the investigation and all the implications. But before we get into anything scientific, Catherine, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jesse. And thank you for um, inviting us and highlighting our work. I appreciate that. Absolutely. And Dara, how about yourself? Doing great. I'm very appreciative of this opportunity to have a conversation with my friend and colleague, Kat, and and to get to meet you, Jesse. Uh, Well, honestly, Dara, uh, this is a blessing and a privilege of my role is that I get to be a fly on the wall at times, albeit one that speaks in English uh, during very, very kind of informal, but also rich conversations between colleagues. So I'm the one that feels very privileged here, and I appreciate both of you for joining us. Now, prior to the interview portion here, I do give a background, your biographies to the listeners, and I thank you for that information. But our listeners really appreciate when the researchers, the guests provide their own story on how they've reached this stage in sleep and circadian research. So Catherine, we'll start with you. Can you please tell us a little bit about your journey to sleep and circadian research? Sure. Well, I have to admit that 
uh, my arriving as a sleep researcher somewhat by accident. I'm an epileptologist by training, and as an epileptologist, I study brain electrical activity. And sometimes the signals can be very subtle and difficult to discern. And what I found was that I could do more careful measurements if I focused on sleep. And so just by happen chance, I started um, pivoting all of my studies towards looking at subjects while they were sleeping. And then I got identified as a sleep researcher by others. And it took me a while to realize that that was what I was doing. Um, but it's been over a decade now. So, so I, I now embrace the identity. I love to hear that you embrace the identity. And honestly, that's the beautiful thing about this field is a lot of times we just serendipitously find ourselves labeled as a sleep researcher. And it's like, wait, how? When did this happen? Was it that publication? Okay, I guess I'm a sleep researcher. But I hope there wasn't too much distress and dissonance as you move through that identity <laughs> journey. And it seems like you've come out in a positive space. Uh, Dara, how about yourself? Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey to this point in sleep and circadian research. So unlike Kat, I can pinpoint a distinct moment, a discrete moment in time when I <laughs> became a sleep researcher. And this was in April of 2001 when I was giving a talk at Brigham and Women's Hospital on my research in schizophrenia. At that time, I was looking at functional MRI studies of working memory in schizophrenia and wanted to use um, activation as a variable in drug research so we could evaluate the effects of medications on prefrontal function. But what I found was that in patients with schizophrenia, they were not reliable from test to retest. They look very different. They're activate, unlike the healthy controls whose activation shrunk and became more focal in schizophrenia, you couldn't tell that it was even the same person. It's almost like they had failed to hone the optimal spatio-temporal pattern of activation to do the task. And I was giving this talk. And after this talk, Bob Stickold came up to me and he said, that depends on sleep. That sort of task automation where you're honing the optimal pattern depends on sleep. And then I relentlessly pursued Bob until I got him to collaborate with me. Um, and at that time, he was doing a very simple finger tapping motor sequence task in his lab that was sleep dependent. And so our first study in patients with schizophrenia used that task and found a fairly circumscribed deficit in um, sleep dependent memory consolidation. And then we were off and running. So Bob and I celebrated our 20th anniversary of collaboration a couple of years ago. Fantastic. And I've had a couple of opportunities to meet the great Dr. Stickold. And I remember I'm going to butcher the year, but this had to be like 2016 or 2017 at the sleep conference. And we were doing some sort of trainee trivia event. And Dr. Stickgold showed up in like a very suave, jazzed up like jacket and glasses ensemble and played the moderating host of the trivia event. And it was good times and a, a wonderful person and outstanding to hear your journey in, in that collaboration. But different collaboration. Yours and Catherine, Dara, how did that come to be? So Kat and I work at MGH together. Well, it's a very big hospital, so not together. Our offices are about half a mile apart. But that's not where I met her. We met at a NINDS slash NIMH sleep and neurodevelopment workshop 
and we hit it off as fast friends. I mean, I had been looking for someone to collaborate in epilepsy based on some work by John Huguenard saying that epilepsy would hijack sleep circuitry for ill to cause seizures, to cause um, seizure events. And so I really was very interested in that literature, but did not have the background to make it happen. And so it was a very natural fit. Outstanding. And and Catherine, anything you'd like to add on that? I see you smiling over there. Yeah, I've heard Dara describe our meeting as love at first sight. And I like that description. It feels very accurate. So as Dara mentioned, we we met in Baltimore, even though our offices are in the same institution. Bethesda. Was it Baltimore? You might be right. It was Bethesda. It was in the, it was in, yeah. Somewhere where we had to take like a long ride from the airport to get to the meeting um, building. I was investigating thalamocortical circuits, underlying cognitive dysfunction and seizures and epilepsy. And Dara gave a brilliant talk on sleep spindles and schizophrenia and the motivation methods and theory behind our work just really merged seamlessly. We took a cab together to the airport from Bethesda. And then once we landed in Boston, we shared an Uber. And, you know, really, we've just been talking nonstop ever since. That was in 2018. So it's been five years. We now have three federal awards together, um, several publications, and just, yeah, infinite bursting projects. Cat and our five-year anniversary will be this September, (laughs) so we'll have to go out and celebrate. Well, happy early celebration to you. I love, absolutely love hearing the love stories of scientific romance. And uh, that one was was beautiful. Love at first sight indeed. And I heard some some words we're probably going to circle back to rather classifiers. I think schizophrenia and epilepsy will certainly come up as we dive deeper into the weeds and trying to untangle and unpack the implications of this study. Uh, so I'm excited to get into all of that with each of you. I think this is a fascinating topic, and I appreciate the efforts that both of you have put in, not just with this paper, but outside of that as well, to draw attention to this scientifically, empirically, but also to integrate it clinically into your practices. That's outstanding. I have always been speculative that academics do not have any hobbies and interests because they have no time to have any hobbies and interests, but I've been pleasantly surprised by responses across uh, from past guests, if you will. So, Catherine. When you're not advancing the frontier of sleep and circadian research, what do you like to do in your spare time? Well, I am a physician and I do enjoy my job. So I am going to include that here, that I spend a lot of um, my time and and energies trying to understand and, and take care of patients with epilepsy. But outside of work completely, the majority of my interests right now are trying to keep up with and raise my three awesome kids. So I have a 16-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 6-year-old, and I'm constantly trying to engage them in my interests. I love water skiing, paddle boarding, um, boating. I love gardening, cooking, and playing pickleball, outdoor types things, but they are constantly trying to engage me in their interests. Um, so I also know how to play Zelda and Pokemon and a little bit of volleyball and occasional climbing. So 
those are the hobbies that that fill my weekends. Remarkably impressive. I mean, I just stare at academics plates, the many plates they carry from from one room to another. And I just wonder, and I'm always so impressed when people are able to balance all of that clinical responsibilities, research roles, teaching everything under the sun, grant writing, all the things while still being uh, familial. And it's amazing that I can see the richness, the meaning come through you when you report that. So that's outstanding. Now, I thought for a second, you were going to say that you really strive as a hobby to measure sleep spindles in your children. I thought that was coming out, (laughs) but I'm really happy it didn't. (laughs) Well, I mean, to be honest, I did test a lot of our paradigms uh, at home on the kids before bringing them into the to the lab. So they know all about this work. (laughs) Fantastic. Get them in early. And Dara, how about yourself when you're not doing all the amazing things that you do professionally? What are your hobbies and interests? So, Kat, you're amazing, first of all. You make it sound like it's possible to have it all. (laughs) And I am not quite so, I don't really have the bandwidth. I find the relentlessness hard to manage a lot of the time. And I have not tested spindles in my daughter, but I have brought all of her friends into the lab for sleep studies where they wore headbands and we validated the headbands with polysomnography. So I haven't tested my kids, but I have tested her friends. This is not true at all, Dara. You're an amazing mother with a million outside hobbies. So don't undersell yourself here. I aspire to be as balanced as you are. Now, I am I'm definitely an extrovert. And I, I think when I'm not working, I'm getting my energy from friends and, and other people in my life. So that's, you know, anything I can do with friends, I'm, I'm happy, whether that be cooking or biking or swimming. That's, yeah, those, I would say, are my hobbies. When you were discussing the application of the headbands to your child's friends, I got me thinking about all the times that I've demoed the high-density EEG caps and posted pictures onto social media and all my friends being like, wait, can I have that for Halloween? And I just wonder, you know, did they want to take the devices out into the public in the real world or were they good just kind of letting it be there, Dara? I think they were good having it just, I mean, they were getting paid for this, (laughs) getting paid to nap. And uh, I think they were happy to leave the headbands behind. Very cool. And I do think perhaps those headbands will come up later as we try and talk about getting maybe longitudinal data collections, things like that as well. Yes. So transitioning here a little bit, we're still in our kind of revving the engine portion of our show outline here in episode. And we're going to talk a little bit about vocation. And we are talking about the first two decades of life. Some of that being childhood, some of that being adolescence, infancy, neonates, all the above. But Catherine, when you were a child, what did you aspire to be when you grew up? So I'm going to have a predictable answer here. I I actually, I think, mostly pivoted around wanting to be a doctor. And the reason is, I mean, this gets to the big questions. As a child, I was already wondering about why are we here? What is the purpose? What is the meaning? And for me, I I did explore several different career ideas and even career pathways in my training, but the simplest answer would be, well, if if you're a doctor, then the meaning can simply be helping people. That's an easy answer. And then it can start to 
maybe chip away at the question of what does it mean to be human, to start to really understand the biology of the body and our experience. So yeah, I think I, I considered being a doctor even from the get-go. Well, you made it. And also <laughs> extremely laudable and also intimidating in some ways that you were, you're coming out of the womb, so to speak, with those big questions in mind. <laughs> pretty outstanding. I think your sleep spindles were probably operating pretty well early on then. Dara, how about yourself? When you were a child, did you aspire to be in the role you are now? Or did you have other aspirations? You know, I really have been pretty consistently interested in psychology and the mind. My college essay was all about the brain and uh, trying to figure out its enigmas. So I had to try to convince myself to consider other things because I was so, you know, focused on being a psychologist, much to my roommate's chagrin, who could not figure out what she wanted to major in. You know, it's weird. I look back on my childhood and I always aspired to be the second baseman for the Chicago Cubs. And perhaps that, <laughs> that, yeah, perhaps that ship has sailed, uh, but maybe I got some years left to make an effort at it. Uh, if they want to you know, sign me, I'm available. But my dad always reports to me that there was evidence early on that I was meant to go into the field of psychology. And I imagine for you as well, that there was probably some indicators early on, whether that be empathy or compassion to others and just trying to understand human behavior the complexity of it that led you along this journey. Yeah, and more more seriously, I mean, I think having psychopathology in one's family is also very motivating. I mean, I think that was certainly the case for me. And I think that's important to mention because, you know, therefore, but the grace of God go I. Well said. And I too share that uh, experience in my own journey as well. And uh, I will say that my training has helped clarify some things. And also confused me a little bit as well, but mostly I think clarified. Now, Dara, if you weren't a sleep and circadian researcher at this stage in your life, what career would you have? Oh, at this stage in my life? How about maybe 20 years ago? That works um, for me too. Investigative journalist, foreign correspondent, solving mysteries. Well, in some ways, you are solving mysteries as a scientist uh, and also as a clinician. So just translating your skills in a different domain. And Catherine, how about yourself? Um, if you were to toss it all away right now, what career would you choose? That's also easy for me. I would, I would love to be a documentary filmmaker. So I like your answer, Dara. It's pretty similar. But the idea of being just able to explore, learn, observe, and yeah, just like wonder. It's always, always attracted me. Beautiful. Now, I think that sets the stage nicely for us to transition a little bit into the science. We're not going to go full throttle yet. We're still kind of preparing for flight, as I like to say. And as I inform both of you, we're going to play a little bit of a word association with a scientific spin. So we'll be doing the keyword association, everyone's favorite segment. So we'll start with Catherine first, and then we'll pass the microphone back to Dara. And unlike the last episode, listeners, I actually do have my keyword association terms in front of me, and they were not at the end of the show outline like I mistakenly did in the last episode. Don't worry about that, Catherine and Dara. But Catherine, are you ready for the keyword association? I'm ready. I love it. Catherine, first term, cognitive development and maturation. 
So now my head is full of rhythms. So I think of rhythms when I think of brain maturation and cognitive maturation. Sweet. And I think we'll get into some oscillating rhythms later on in connection to that. Dara, when I say normative values, what comes to mind? Powerful, predicted, useful, longitudinal. Those are good words. I should have probably used those for the keyword association. Um, Catherine, diagnostic biomarkers. <laughs> You're pigeonholing me. I, I, I think of rhythms, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> you have a focused mind. That's what I'm hearing right now. Uh, and that's good for the progression of science. Um, Dara, and last one here to land our keyword association. When I say non-invasive therapeutic targets, what comes to mind? Circuitry, plasticity. Bingo. All right. Well, that lands our keyword association. And now we'll transition into the next stage of our episode where I'm going to have Catherine and Dara give kind of a high level 10,000 foot view of the article. And as I mentioned in the introduction, today's episode is going to focus specifically on our investigation that I believe Dr. Is it Kwan and uh, the two of you published in the journal Sleep, which is entitled Sleep Spindles in the Healthy Brain from Birth Through 18 Years. Uh, so we'll start with this, Catherine. Can you please discuss kind of the rationale? What fueled you to perform this research? Sure. And, and I want to thank you for mentioning uh, Dr. Kwan. So this project was led by Hunky Kwan, a postdoctoral fellow and that works here at Mass General, uh, Katie Walsh, Aaron Berja, Dara, myself, as well as two of our other collaborators, Ori Eden and Mark Kramer, both in the math and statistics department at Boston University. So as an epileptologist, as somebody who I, I focus on um, interpreting EEGs across the lifespan, so from the neonates all the way through older adults, and I can say that I think mapping and understanding cortical human neurophysiology is hugely underleveraged at this point uh, in neuroscience and in clinical neurology and, and psychiatry and psychology as well. Um, so to an untrained eye, the brain rhythms across development can look chaotic and uninterpretable. But having stared at thousands and thousands of recordings myself, we do know that there are distinct rhythms and um, patterns of the rhythms that emerge spatially and temporally over development. So really the big motivation of this project was to trying to start to map um, quantify and organize these dynamics. And um, we wanted to start with a very um, well understood and well characterized rhythm, sleep spindles. Beautiful. And, you know, when you were reporting there, I was thinking back, I was taking that to a class I had on developmental psychology, which I shared with uh, not just clinical psychology students, but counseling psychology, uh, educational psychology, and school psychology students. It was a mixture. And we had an activity that was asking us to draw what kind of the normative trajectory looks like in development. And a lot of the clinical students did draw kind of this kind of normative pattern that starts early on that's pretty generalized, that we go through very similar processes as things come online and advance and so on. 
And then we got into these really unique divergent trails. But many of the other students did not agree with that. And I personally see these types of studies as good indicators that, yeah, we are uniquely different, but we also have these very shared components of our physiology that can be traced and can map onto certain signatures that we can measure. Uh, and I think the sleep spindles and how you approach this investigation, looking at the various different features, which we'll get into in the next question here, really showcases that. That, yeah, if we go down to the individual level, maybe there's some divergence here and there. But generally, if we look at it from a smooth perspective, there are these true, tangible, observable patterns of the physiology and especially the brain. I'm just going to leave it there. Uh, Dara, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, Jesse, you bring up such an interesting issue. It reminds me when um, my daughter was just born and I was getting these emails from this service that was trying to sell me products. But they every day or every week, they would send some email saying exactly what my baby would be doing that day. And they were uncannily accurate. So it just really convinced me that these processes were unwinding in a very systematic and conserved way. And I think Kat has beautifully captured this in this paper. Um, I think it was, she has provided a unique resource. It was a Herculean effort. And it's going to be really helpful in the identification of where this um, unwinding of development goes awry. And it's going to allow us some mechanistic constraints. So what's happening? What do we know about the brain? I mean, talking about putting together puzzles, I think this is a beautiful example of providing a piece and some evidence um, of how spindles uh, develop. And it's nonlinearity that's going to allow us to pinpoint how development may go awry and lead to the early identification of problems so that we can intervene. So I I think it's a really beautiful and important piece of work. I'll just add that brain physiology is not mystical. It's yoked to true anatomy, circuitry, and reflects those underlying stereotyped maturational circuits. And just as we see children develop explosively in the first like few years of life, we also see the EEG rhythms evolve and change dramatically early in life and then begin to settle out and taper into a steadier state as we're hitting adolescence and, and adulthood. Absolutely beautifully said. And in many ways, it's neuroimaging, right? We were not necessarily doing fMRI here, but we're getting an indication of where kind of synaptic growth is occurring, synaptic explosion, all those types of things. You know, there's a finding in this paper and I'm jumping in and I apologize but that has to do with when fast versus slow spindles come online in relation to motor versus declarative memory. And obviously this makes a lot of sense based on when certain portions of the brain develop. And again, that's the beauty of this paper. And it reminded me a lot of, I think it was Kurth et al, a 2010 paper that looked at slow wave topography changes across development. And I may bring up a point later on about how I noticed a unique kind of topographic divergence, if you will, between spindles and kind of the early years of life and slow waves, kind of posterior, anterior, which I found interesting. And But it's just a beautiful thing. And it's it's not just a signature, right? It is more than that. It's peeling back the layers. Um, so how did you peel back the layers? What sort of kind of high-level methodology did you use here? Uh, to the listeners out there, I have to, have to emphasize, go read this paper because the methodology is amazing. 
um, the ability to utilize clinical recordings, uh, all sorts of things that I'm sure Catherine will unpack here, but it's pretty dense. And I don't think we'll be able to cover all the details here when it comes to the creation and validation of a unique spindle detector and all the kind of admirable traits of this paper. But Catherine, generally speaking, kind of how did you go about tackling this missing gap of knowledge? Right. So it was a big effort. Um, and so, again, I just want to highlight all the efforts by the co-authors on, on the project. But it, it involved first curating a database of typically developing children. And so we wanted to characterize rhythms over the whole course of development from zero days of life through 18 years. And so to do that, we curated from the hospital database of people that had come for an evaluation that included an EEG that were subsequently found to not have a disease related to um, an abnormal EEG finding, and then uh, also found to have normal, typical cognitive, um, neurologic, and behavioral development, and have captured sleep on their EEG that was recorded. And so we curated all of those subjects if anything, a super normal database, because if we were to have done a population-based study with self-selected participants, they may not have been evaluated by physicians to have cleared them as not having, um, we required them not to be taking psychoactive medications and not have uh, other comorbidities that could contribute to abnormal brain rhythms. So that was the first part. The second part was we needed to have a reliable and generalized spindle detector that would perform consistently across the different age ranges because we do know that sleep spindles evolve over development with small variations in their features. And so to do that, we first started by hand marking spindles. And um, so I'm a clinical neurophysiologist where that's my job is to, to detect events in the EEG by eye. So we trained people to hand mark the spindles. We hand marked 10,000 spindles that were um, equally sorted across the different ages. And then we trained a spindle detector, detector that would be robust to the different changes in spindle features as well as background features over the course of development and then validated that detector. Once we had those two things, a healthy database and a validated spindle detector, then our job was to characterize the sleep spindles that, that we detected. Outstanding. And I think if I remember correctly, you were looking at a variety of features at a multitude of different kind of EEG uh, derivations, uh, upwards of maybe like 20 derivations or so across the scalp. Is that correct? So there were 19 derivations across each subject. Perfect. And you were looking at spindle rate, the duration, uh, percentage of spindles within and to sleep, the spindle refractory period, the interhemispheric spindle lag, and I believe just differences across the board between slow and fast spindles delineated by kind of the 13 hertz threshold. And so a lot there, right? And so that's why when we go into the findings here in a second, we really have to guide the listeners to go back into the manuscript to read deep because it, it would just be impossible to really clearly articulate the various patterns in the short amount of time that we have here. Uh, but Catherine, generally speaking, you know, what did you find across these, you know, two decades of life? So 
the devil's in the details here. So I think the main finding was that we did see um, age-specific, uh, systematic or stereotyped development of all of these features across different brain regions across development. And so we do show that there is kind of a method to the madness. There is a normative trajectory for how these brain circuits evolve by location and by age. We looked at all of the features that you just outlined. The most interesting finding to me was observing the emergence of the two different spindle populations, fast spindles and slow spindles. And we didn't use a cutoff here to define what fast spindles were or what slow spindles were, but we followed the, the data empirically where we looked at the frequency of, of the spindles in the different locations per age. And what we saw was the emergence really of slow spindles occurs over the second year of life and starts to separate from fast spindles. And then those two spindle populations evolve um, in concert then over the, over the rest of development. Sometimes just science and evolution, as Dara said earlier, things that are conserved just are so fascinating and blow my mind. And then things that are conserved that also get expanded upon, right? Like you can see how perhaps different spindles mapped onto different things that happened across the evolutionary pipeline and needed to associate, I guess, with various changes that one would do, whether it be basic functions such as motor tasks, movement versus kind of higher order, higher level cognition and computation. And it's just fascinating to see that. And it's salient, at least from my perspective. Right. It would make sense if it's somehow related to that. That's work that remains to be done. Like what does the emergence of slow frontal spindles map to cognitively? But it would make sense, I agree, that it would uh, somehow be linked to that emergence of those higher order functions that we see with frontal lobe maturation. Outstanding. And Dara, did you have a specific finding or you know, take home from this paper or anything in general that, that you found really remarkable and fascinating? I mean, I think I, I agree with you that this divergence of fast and slow spindles early in development and how those lines go together and then separate both in terms of the topography and frequency, I think is fascinating because we know that they're functionally different, even in adults. And I just want to say that CAT makes this all sound easy. This is such an incredibly rich data set. And being able to extract these, you know, important observations really takes a tremendous amount of wisdom and background. And I think I just wanted to emphasize that because... <laughs> it, it really is like finding needles in haystacks, trying to extract the signal and all this noise. And so I think, yeah, I think that's part of the contribution as well. Thank you, Dara. It's, it's easy once it's written down, but when you start with a blank paper, I agree. It's, it's, it's a bit of a Herculean task. Yep. Well, I fully agree with Dara there. And, you know, the discussion itself reads really well as far as trying to distill down the main findings from a very complicated web of findings. And so kudos to your team. And again, I want to emphasize, as you did, the team nature of this. And, you know, I believe you really brought in a really collaborative, multidisciplinary team, which, again, is what we should be doing as scientists. And that produces the best quality work. And this is such a great exemplar of that when you're bringing in, you know, statisticians and just various experts from all different domains in many ways it produces rich research that has great utility. And that's this paper. So great job to all of you.
And I just also want to emphasize the um, contribution of Mark Kramer, who really was instrumental in developing this spindle detector that was is robust to all sorts of activity and can be used in this way, because I think that was really the backbone of being able to do this. I fully agree. And I remember actually, this must have been an abstract, maybe like eight years ago, I was a baby infant in the sleep the sleep field at that time. But it was an abstract of the sleep conference, a poster presentation that showed differential outputs from like eight to 10 different spindle detectors. And the variation was not just significant, but extremely notable and problematic when you start thinking about normative values, right? We need these things to be stable and we want to be able to trust them. And if we're getting that much divergence across all these different spindle detectors, well, clearly they're probably not, you know, the best spindle detectors per se, and we can do improvements. And I'm not going to sit here and say that this is the best spindle detector that's ever been or that will ever be created, right? But to our knowledge, based on the statistics, this one is very, very, very quality. So great work there. Uh, was that Dr. Kramer? Great work there. Fantastic. Because that unlocks this paper. It affords the ability to do this research. I'll comment on that a little bit, too, if I can. The yeah, go for detector. it. And I can, I can um, give kudos back to Dara here because um, when we first started wanting to evaluate sleep spindles in epilepsy, Dara's lab actually had one of the best performing spindle detectors that was available. And when we applied that spindle detector to our data, we just broke the detector, which was not going to perform well in pathological data with epileptic spikes due to the nature of how the detector was designed. And so that led us to work on a new detector. And here I'll out that Mark Kramer is my husband. So this is part of how I get to have it all, is that collaboration with your husband is one easy way to be more efficient in science. So Mark is a mathematical neuroscientist who focuses his work on epilepsy. This was how we met, was through epilepsy research. And Mark and I worked together. He built the detector and I kept trying to break it. He built it, I broke it, he built it, I broke it until we came up with a detector that was going to be robust to the kinds of features that we see not only in epilepsy, but also in development and in sleep in general. And so I agree there's probably other ways that you could make a robust detector, but we did need to start with one that we believed was measuring what we wanted to measure in order to, to start this line of research. My mind is absolutely blown. There is so much goodness and awesomeness <laughs> in that last you know, two minutes of commentary. I mean, it's just amazing that you got to work with your husband on this. And in fact, it didn't derail your marriage. In fact, it probably enhanced your marriage as you went back and forth on that front. You know, maybe there was some couples therapy along the way as you kept throwing <laughs> in these really strange waveforms at them. But no, that's fantastic to hear. And uh, thank you, Dr. Kramer, for affording your expertise in advancing this line of research. Yeah, Dara. I just want to call out Aaron Wamsley, who was the developer of the original spindle detector. So I would have had no, <laughs> no ability to do this without Aaron's very careful work. So that was that's where we started was with Aaron Walmsley. Beautiful. Well, I usually get to the acknowledgments at the end of the episode, but we can just pile, <laughs> pile them in now. Uh, no, I, I love it. And it's true because this is science, right? It often feels so isolated. And, you know, I'm in my dissertation right now, I'm writing my dissertation. It feels lonely, it feels like this is my project. I have to do it. But good science is 
concurrently working with the team and also recognizing what was done previously that allows you to be where you're at now. Uh, and that just saliently came through with all of that in the last five minutes. And again, that's why this paper is so amazing, right? Is the wealth of effort that went into it. So fantastic there. And listeners, please, please, please go check out the awesome figures that really do a fantastic job showcasing various trajectories and uh, the different spindle parameters across the two year or the two decades. And then also just a fantastic job in the manuscript in trying to describe the patterns in a clear manner when it's a very complex set of patterns, if you will, in this web. So great job there. But I think we're ready just to dive a little bit deeper. And as the three of us kind of brainstormed how to approach this section, I think we saw a lot of consensus and really narrowing the focus and centering on the kind of practical implications of this line of inquiry and where we can go from here. So the two of you are experts in this area. I have somewhat peripheral understanding given my training and just the relation, uh, my relationship with mental health and, and things like that as well as a training psychologist. But sleep spindle abnormalities are certainly implicated in a variety of pathologies, as we mentioned earlier, schizophrenia, uh, epilepsy. There's also other forms of neurocognitive disorders and neurodevelopmental disorders where abnormalities are shown. So clearly they have some sort of utility. Let's start with this, Catherine. Where do you see these normative values best being utilized in the clinical domain? Rare diseases. I think that would be one immediate area um, where I would hope that this kind of work would be helpful. I mean, I want to talk about epilepsy, which is not a rare disease, but I also have worked on different projects uh, looking at ultra-rare diseases and biomarkers for ultra-rare diseases, both to diagnose the diseases and also to detect variation in the spectrum of the disease and also to detect target engagement with treatment, I'm looking for whether we can use brain rhythms for, for these types of measures. And for each rare disease, the groups have to then come up with a control cohort to compare them to, which just becomes extremely challenging and expensive. And so the hope is that if we can have a normative database, then those ultra-rare diseases where you might have a cohort of 20 to 40 patients, you can map them onto the normal trajectory and see when and whether they deviate and when and whether they can return back to typical values. Well said. And I think the technology is really getting there too, that when we have these databases and when we have kind of an individual, it'll be accessible to actually do true comparisons in kind of a necessary short amount of time from the clinical domain. Uh, that certainly, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think would have been really even feasible in many ways. But with kind of the new advancements in AI and things like that, we can comb through a lot of big data sets to really identify and to establish relationships. So I do think there's a lot of merit there. Dara, where do you think these normative values per se are, are best utilized in the kind of clinical domain? So, you know, I spoke before about my work in schizophrenia. Um, where I started in sleep. And more recently, my work is increasingly converging with Kat's work because I have been studying autism. And it's a very different picture of sleep disruption than um, people with chronic schizophrenia who are medicated, who have generally normal 
sleep quality, and upwards of 80% of people with autism have sleep disturbance. And a lot of them also have epilepsy. And getting back to Kat's comment on rare diseases, particularly in people with profound autism and genetic etiologies of autism, there's a very high seizure rate. And so I'm coming back again to this idea that these processes are hijacking the circuitry in a way, and that CAT has provided this normative database where we can begin to sort out what is going on with sleep in this group, which very different signature of spindle deficits and coupling deficits than schizophrenia. And I think in these groups, early identification is really important of something of development going awry. And with these headbands, I mean, I think sleep and autism is tremendously understudied just because of the difficulty and expensive lab-based studies. And so with these headbands, we can send them home with individuals and um, look at sleep longitudinally, look where development goes awry. I think from both a clinical and also a understanding basic mechanisms point of view, this is becoming you know, so important. And Kat has, and Mark have provided this beautiful latent state model to measure spindles that's robust to epileptic spikes. And so I think there's a burgeoning um, field of opportunity there. And so I'm very excited to go forward with this with Kat as the collaborator. Honestly, the early detection and prevention was kind of the theme that jumped out to me initially. We definitely, I think in uh, Catherine's response, I heard the word treatment, and I want to get to that in a second too. But um, I believe it's Dr. Peter Atia, who is not in the sleep and circadian field. He has a podcast called The, Tri- the Drive, which has to do with um, the science of longevity and, and aging for the most part. Uh, but he always talks about medicine 3.0, this new age of medicine being about preventing, right? Rather than waiting for issues to arise, let's detect them early and try and modify if we can or at least manage early on. And that's where I started to see a picture of like, okay, these are where normative values really come into play. We can see if somebody is widely divergent early on, and they may need some more invasive form of intervention or more uh, aggressive form of intervention, not so much invasive. Whereas somebody who may not be as divergent and is more just slightly outside, well, then it's maybe close monitoring or something like that. Uh, and not necessarily any sort of modification per se. Uh, but that's kind of where my brain was going. And the challenge I see here is measurement and actually getting people in these early stages of lives who have no necessary no necessary concern at that point to have potentially wearing these headbands, getting some data. Do you, Dara, foresee a world where maybe this becomes part of like standard medical practice in some ways where there is a habitual, maybe like every two to four years across development, an assay of spindles. <laughs> You're speaking with a spindle monomaniac, actually. No, I'm, you know, I'm also partial to slow oscillations and ripples. But I mean, I think probably not if there are no clinical issues, if there's no reason. But I can see this as being a very easy and inexpensive way to track and and make sure someone's on track when behavioral issues do arise or when there's suspicion of instead of coming in to the MGH for an EEG that Kat's going to use for probabilistic uh, norms, 
people can, we can just ship a device at home with instructions and measure sleep and, you know, download it remotely. So it's a very inexpensive and scalable option for early diagnosis. And, you know, as we fill in this puzzle and link these sleep rhythms to behavior and circuitry, I think it'll become more and more informative and useful. Absolutely beautiful. Catherine? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think your your intuitions are right on target, or at least in line with mine as well, where sleep spindles are just the tip of the iceberg. But as we better understand how these rhythms uh, reflect underlying circuits, then we can better utilize them. But sleep spindles on their own, I think, already have amazing potential for diagnostic utility. So for example, we have a paper under review right now looking at sleep spindles in early infancy as a predictor of subsequent detectable cerebral palsy. And this just makes a lot of practical sense because sleep spindles are the downstream final biomarker for uh, intact thalamocortical circuitry. And so if you look at sleep spindles over the motor cortex, then you're assaying the entire thalamocortical uh, sensory motor circuitry. And sleep spindles, since they're present so early in life, you can get measurements of them well before any clinical exam is useful. Um, so it's, it's important also to just know that the, the cortical exam in a neonate and an infant is really quite abominable because we don't have enough maturation and and uh, sophistication of our cognitive abilities to be able to assess them um, externally in exams. And so having direct measures of cortical electrical activity is just a much more sophisticated and sensitive measure of what should be going on there. Remarkable, both of you truly. And it honestly triggers so much thought to where I'm at in my dissertation, where the words that come to mind are informed nosology right, in many ways, because right now we lack kind of objective biomarkers for insert any disorder for the most part, you know, we really struggle, especially in mental health with having any sort of objective biomarker. And these seem to not just be valid. But from my understanding, too, and I'm very, very uh, naive here, so I probably I may be wrong. But they also do have good reliability, you know, day to day, night to night, from my understanding. Is that correct? These are trait like features of the sleep EEG that have been called electrophysiological fingerprints. So yes, they're they're quite reliable over time, you know, excluding normal development. That's outstanding. And so it's about early detection. It's about the ability to identify and kind of provide insight into potential pathology when symptoms and clinical concern do arise. And then on the other side of it, they're actually targetable, from my understanding, for treatment as well. Catherine, can you talk a little bit about potential routes that can be utilized? And then we'll pass it to Dara as well. I'm most familiar in my work with slow waves, thinking about kind of TMS and acoustic stimulation. And I imagine there's probably similar methodology when it comes to sleep spindles. Is, is that correct? Yes, that's right. So if you evoke a slow oscillation, then you're evoking an event that supports sleep spindles. And so um, in our work with Dara and Brian Baxter, um, an instructor uh, in Dara's lab, we have been 
using auditory stimulation or acoustic stimulation to evoke spindles. But I want to back up a little bit to just give a bigger picture that ties a bit into some of our projects with epilepsy, which also tie into why, why we really need location-specific, age-specific normative measures. Um, so epilepsy is a disease of abnormal electrical activity in the brain that generates seizures. And it's not stereotyped across patients. Patients can have epilepsy effect, affecting one hemisphere, both hemispheres, one part of one hemisphere, uh, several parts of different hemispheres. And you can imagine then that if different regions of the brain are impacted, they may have different cognitive comorbidities or side effects. And in fact, patients with epilepsy do have cognitive comorbidities, and yet we don't understand them at all. Um, Dara mentioned the hypothesis of spikes hijacking sleep spindles, and in fact, that's exactly what we have found is that epileptiform spikes that you see in epilepsy that can be focal, affecting one or multiple cortical regions at different ages, um, do hijack the spindle circuitry, and in that way can have focal cognitive impact. And this is extremely difficult to measure at a bedside exam. So having some sort of an objective quantification of abnormal healthy rhythms that are necessary for normal memory or normal cognition really does let us then diagnose or, or would allow us to diagnose and detect what is called an epileptic encephalopathy or cognitive dysfunction related to the epilepsy, which right now we have terrible means to detect this in clinical care. If we were to have a biomarker that was found to be reliable, then just as you said, we could then start testing and assaying different treatments that could support that biomarker. You've already mentioned acoustic stimulation. This is a non-invasive approach. Different medications can also impact sleep spindles. And if we were to actually target and, and do high throughput screening for medications that have an impact on biomarkers of cognitive function, I'm sure we would find more. Right now, the ones that are available that we know of, primarily benzodiazepines, also come with a lot of side effects. So my hope would be that that we could identify some more targeted treatments. Fantastic. And there's so many people thinking about that these days, that in the next five years, there's going to be similar to these headbands, just very accessible modalities to utilize habitually for individuals and will allow us to test this more appropriately over time. Dara, do you have any thoughts on where this might be headed in terms of treatment? Obviously, pinpointing specific locations in the brain is necessary, specific features of spindles within certain disorders, and even certain symptoms within disorders is going to be necessary for precision medicine here. Uh, and I imagine that you think about that a lot, just given my now hour and a half of time talking with you. Uh, so generally speaking, what are your thoughts about kind of spindles being an approachable treatment target? So I'm going to start here with a cautionary tale. So we used Zopaclone, brand name Lunesta, to try to treat the spindle deficit in schizophrenia and, you know, to improve memory because spindles mediate memory and in schizophrenia, 
The spindle deficit correlates with a deficit in sleep-dependent memory consolidation. So, of course, if we increase spindles, we'll improve memory. And so we did this study of a Zopa clone, and what we found was that, yay, it did increase spindles in both healthy people and people with schizophrenia, but it had no effect on memory. In fact, in the patients, there was a trend to a worsening of memory. So what gives? And here's where the story gets a little bit more complicated. As you well know, spindles don't work in isolation. They're temporarily correlated with cortical flow oscillations and hippocampal ripples. What we found out when we looked more carefully at our data, what we found out was that a Zopa clone, in addition to increasing spindles, also disrupted slow oscillations. It made them longer and flatter. So it decreased the amplitude, the consistency, and the duration of slow oscillations. And in collaboration with Carmen Varela, we also found that a Zopa clone um, impaired hippocampal ripples, suppressed hippocampal ripples in rodents. I think it's going to be very challenging to try to develop drugs. And I think I'm more excited about the potential of closed-loop auditory stimulation, which Brian Baxter in my lab has been developing over his postdoc and now as an instructor, as a scalable intervention, a scalable, safe, and fairly benign intervention that can be implemented in the home with commercially available devices. You know, and I think it can be targeted. So, you know, there's a lot of variation between um, where a spindle peaks in the upstate of slow oscillations and how long that takes. So I think there's room to um, use precision medicine um, approaches to model someone's ongoing EEG in real time and to time the stimulation perfectly for that individual and for what the target is. So I think there's a lot of flexibility in this particular method. So I'm excited about that as a potential benign intervention. I really appreciate how you unpack that. Unfortunately, it's not just, okay, spindle deficiency, let's augment spindles and voila, it's resolved. (laughs) I kind of wish humans were that simple, but (laughs) as I've started to now progress out of my you know, first decade of young adulthood and, and starting to mature a little bit more, I've learned that we're very, very complex and it often is much more granular than meets the eye. And so I'm glad that your team is really focusing your efforts on that. And I may have to reach out to talk to, is it Dr. Baxter as well, as I think there might be utility with some of the work I'm doing in idiopathic hypersomnia as well. So um, I might need to reach out as far as potential pilot downstream. But being mindful of time here, I just want to thank both of you so much for taking this time out to have such a rich discussion. Again, we barely scratched the surface. I feel like we could have gone so deep into the weeds if we wanted to. But I thought we did a very nice job. Both of you did an amazing job showcasing your knowledge. I hope people reach out, hopefully not to burden you, but to learn more because it is such a fascinating and rich area. However, before I let both of you go, I have one final question, and as I tell people, it's probably the hardest question of them all. So, Catherine, Dara, are you ready? (laughs) Ready. All right, and it always gets a bit awkward with two people, because oftentimes they have a shared response, but we'll start with Dara. If you were afforded unlimited funding to explore a singular sleep and or circadian topic, there's no constraints at all, no resource issues, no time, nothing at all, then what would you investigate? So I think this would be considered heresy, 
um, from a sleep vantage point. But I mean, sleep and wake are treated as two discrete states, yet they both play really important roles in learning and memory. So I would envision some sort of cross-species, multimodality, cross-levels from genes to circuits and um, molecules and cognition and symptoms. And I'm imagining that sort of very complex, rich study to understand how sleep and wake together modulate learning and plasticity in the human brain. Outstanding. Well, I look forward to that being published in 30 years and we can have you on the (laughs) SRS podcast at that time. Actually, we'll probably just transmit a signal and it will put the SRS podcast in people's brains at that point. Uh But Catherine, I'm not sure that Dara left you anything. I'll I'll work on that project with Dara, but I have an even more expensive project to propose. (laughs) I'm excited. What would you propose? (laughs) Okay. So I mentioned that my husband, Mark, is a mathematical neuroscientist. And so he has convinced me that brain rhythms, in order to have the most efficient communication, cross-frequency communication, organize according to a mathematical principle called the golden ratio, the proportions of which are determined by the circadian cycle of the Earth. So in order to test Marx's theory, we would need to study life outside of our planet with a different circadian rhythm. So that project would definitely require a lot of unlimited funding. (laughs) I will say that is definitely the first extraterrestrial investigation that's been proposed here on the SRS podcast. We made it through all of season one without one, but it was only a matter of time. So I thank you and your husband for bringing that and uh, taking the lid off, if you will. Um, We're not just a human focused podcast by any regard or even earthbound podcast, I guess, to be honest. (laughs) But truly, thank you both so much. Dr. Manoik, Dr. Chu, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to join me. Uh, I will now say it. Unfortunately, I won't be seeing you both at sleep this year, but hopefully next year at a future sleep, we'll be able to link up and I can thank you directly for your your time and efforts here. Uh, I'll plug some of your contact information in the show notes for any listeners to burden you, of course. But again, thank you so much and take care of yourselves and be well. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you. It was so much fun. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Ruloff Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.